I don't care if somebody wants to criticize my 5K time from July 4th. I mean, I got an opportunity to go and race and I went out a little too hard. I'd made a few mistakes. I learned a bunch from it. It was awesome. That's the point of it. That's the point of racing. So I, I think that's a really critical component of nowadays people race less, I think, because there's too much pressure on those results and instead of focusing on the process. That's Tyler McCandless. And this is episode 68 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and I'm really excited to share this week's conversation with all of you. I was in Boulder, Colorado last week and had a chance to sit down with Tyler McCandless. He's a 212 marathoner whose career I've been following closely for the past 10 years. Tyler is not only one of the most underrated road racers in the U.S., he's also one of the nicest guys in running, and you'll see why in this episode. We covered all kinds of ground in this one, from why Tyler trains without a GPS watch to learning how to race aggressively and with confidence, balancing his full-time job as a machine learning scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research with being a professional long-distance runner, his relationship with his coach, former marathon world record holder Steve Jones, and how that's evolved over the past six and a half years, the importance of having interests outside of running and not losing sight of the purity of the sport, and a lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation and personally took a lot away from it, and I know you will too. So let's dive right in with Tyler McCandless. recording this July 9th. I don't know when it's going to come out yet, but you are due to be a dad like any day soon. Oh, maybe any hour <laughs> soon. Uh, you got your phone right there just in case the call comes in. How are you feeling at this moment? It's your first child. It is. We, my wife, Kristen, and I are very excited. Um, so yeah, so the due date is Friday and we have a plan C-section, so it uh, it shouldn't be any later than Friday morning. Um, but yes, I have my phone with me, making sure I don't get that that call. I need to run home and, and go and grab her. But we cannot be more excited to be parents, and it's something we've wanted for a long time. Um, so the excitement is building. Of course, there's nervousness and stress involved, but we, we're just really looking forward to meeting the little guy on Friday morning. What parts of it make you the most nervous or stressed? Uh, it's certainly, you know, Life balance is is always hard uh, when you're working, when you're running, when uh, you have a significant other. It's hard to balance all of those when you're you know really living like a passionate life and trying to live life really to the fullest. And adding in something that's going to take the top priority um, is certainly going to be something that we're going to have to um, rebalance in our in our lives. So that, of course, I think is probably the most. Um, nerve-wracking, and then never change a diaper. So things like that will, of course, be uh, be a learning experience. Have you and Kristen talked about how you will adjust your lifestyle, or have you just said, "Wait till he gets here, and we'll figure it out as we go"? Uh, we've we've talked a bit, but we also want to make sure that we have like the flexibility to adjust as as we go. We have a great routine now, and we know things like yeah, being able to wake up and have. Uh, cereal and coffee together in the morning is going to, you know, look a little different and things like that. But we really just want to live in the moment and make sure that we're responding to, to what he needs. Well, that's super exciting. I wish you both the best. We're sitting here at your office. This is the National Center of Atmospheric Research where you work full time, I yep. imagine. Mm -hmm. And you're also training professionally as 
a distance runner. It's about nine. I think it's about nine o'clock right now as we're sitting here talking. What does your morning look like so far? Uh, alarm went off 4.55 a.m. I uh, got up, had coffee and cereal with Kristen, and then I left the house a little after 6, drove to – we actually worked out on a path right near my office here. Uh, we work out at different locations. Today I was kind of lucky that it, I can literally park in my office parking lot and run out with my racing flats on and go work out. But I did a workout, uh, uh, kind of a ladder down, ladder back up, five minutes down to two minutes, back up to five minutes with the the group coached by Steve Jones. And we just all show up. We work really hard, ready to go at 7 a.m., done with warm-up drills, strides, uh, work out together really hard, cool down, and then we all go to our offices. And, you know, I've showered and in my office by 8.30 this morning and checking emails and doing things before meeting you. So that's a, that's a pretty typical day. And you've been doing this sort of routine for a while where you've been training at a very high level, but also either working full time or, I mean, for a few years you were um, in a PhD program. So, I mean, that was very time consuming as well. Are you just used to it at this point or would you want to change anything? Yeah, I'm pretty used to it. I think when I had my uh, my kind of breakthrough in the marathon, I was working more in the, the private sector for a company. It's kind of quasi-consulting. And because we were consulting, we build an hourly rate. And, you know, I had to mark down all the hours I was working. And right before the marathon, I had looked at the year and I was averaging 51 hours a week. And that was probably a little bit too much work, just generally speaking for my life. Um, But I ran my best marathon and felt I was in the best shape of my life. And Chris and I had dinner together every single night and we made that a priority. So, you know, I think that it is something that I just... When you live a, a life where you're like passionate, inspired about what you do, whether it's in the workplace, uh, whether it's your passions outside of it, which for me is, of course, running and spending time with my family is the most important, then you kind of make the time. You figure out your time management so that you can live each moment very uh, in the moment. Have you always lived that way or did you come to a revelation at some point where you said, I want to prioritize these things and everything else can go by the wayside? Uh, I've been on both spectrums. I've certainly made the mistake. So in graduate school, my fifth year of school, I did a combined bachelor's master's program. And I realized I wanted to continue for the PhD. And when I realized that I wanted to do this, I was like, well, I should take the PhD candidacy exams. So in my fifth year of school, I had a 4.0. I completed my master's thesis, defended it successfully, took the PhD candidacy exams, passed it, ran 100 miles a week for most of the spring and earned my only All-American while I was at Penn State. And I got through the end of that semester, and although I was very, very proud, I was also just a little burnt, uh, both academically uh, and a bit athletically. And I had an opportunity where my advisor took a position here at the National Center for Atmospheric Research or NCAR in Boulder to finish the PhD. And I was like, this sounds great, but I need to take a break. So I took a leave of absence from school and I spent two years where I was mostly just focused on running uh, and I ran worse and I missed the academic stimulus. I just, I continued to overtrain, thought about running too much. I just lost kind of that enjoyment and real passion that you grow up having with the sport. Uh, and I was coaching high school at the time as kind of like a little bit on the side. And that kind of kept the purity in the sport a little bit. But uh, I realized I needed that balance. And when I went back to finish the PhD program doing research here at NCAR, 
that's when my running started to pick up and really take off. And I found the full enjoyment because I had that better balance again. And you were what, 22 to 24 at the time? About that. Yeah. And for you, how important is it to have that balance? And do you encourage others that you see following maybe a similar path that you did come out of school where they want to be the best runner that they can be, qualify for the Olympic trials, maybe put themselves in position to be on a team or represent the U.S. internationally to just find something else to balance out that training and give them something else to focus on and put their energies toward? Definitely. I I certainly would highly advise that, but I also highly advise making a, a calculated mistake too. You know, I knew that I had time to to take a leave of absence without completely leaving the program. I had the opportunity to go back and finish that schooling. Um, so I don't think that necessarily taking a break and focusing all on running is necessarily a bad thing. And some people perform better that way. And when they try to balance, uh, they're just not able to. But for me, and I think uh, more people are probably like me, that if they have another stimulus that they can focus on, especially when running isn't going well, it allows them to kind of put the energy into that. And then they can kind of take the time and be patient and let running come back to them. And that might be injury, that might be burnout, that might be just putting too much pressure on themselves. Um, and honestly, it's hard to make running a career. So being able to put the energy into something that's going to be a career that's going to support our family for years and decades to come, uh, that's really important. So I feel that now I'm more in the moment when I'm running and I'm more in the moment when I'm at work. And when I come home, I'm hopefully being a better husband and soon to be a better father because I've been able to be in the moment the whole day. Those are incredible takeaways. And I think they apply even to non-professionals, the age grouper who is trying to run a personal best to qualify for Boston, or, you know, maybe it's someone who's trying to qualify for the Olympic trials as well, but just not letting running define them and be their only sense of identity. Cause I've seen that with a lot of the athletes that I coach running is very important to them and that's great. Um, but sometimes it can become the only thing. And I've seen through my experience when that's the case, the running usually suffers, but everything else in their life suffers. So the running is not complementing everything that's going on in their life and vice versa. Their lifestyle is not complementing their running. So when that running's taken away, you know, the house of cards sort of falls down. The foundation isn't there. Yeah. You said running defines you and, or made that kind of comment. I think that's really important is not letting running define you. One of the best parts about our sport and the worst parts about our sport is we get a very specific number tied with a distance that we run. So yes, I've run 212.28 in the marathon, but I'm not a 212.28 marathoner. I'm myself who's running the marathon. And when you're, rather than being like defined by a time, you're defined by who you are and hopefully how you've given back and helped others and been more of a positive impact on the community and the sport around you, that's way more important. And that should define you more than any single number. And yes, it's great that our sport has that ability to have a very specific metric and you can set very tangible and, you know, smart goals it's and really go black after and white them. In that way. But it is very black and white. Yeah. Going back to you, how long have you been here in Boulder? Has it been the last 10 years straight? Did you go away for a while after you came back and did that initial stint here at, at NCAR or? I've stayed here. So I've been here for, I think it'll be nine years next month. And did uh, you know least. right away that this was going to be home for you or were you sort of looking a little more short, short term saying this is a great place for right now. I can pursue my research. I can also train at a high level, but I don't know if it's my my forever home. 
So the first time I got to go to Boulder, I was an undergrad. I was in my uh, entering my fourth year of school at Penn State. And there's an opportunity called the uh, NCAR Undergraduate Leadership Workshop. And one student from about 20 different colleges or universities get the opportunity to come to NCAR for a week in the summer and talk to scientists, talk to professionals, understand what career opportunities are in front of them. And I was selected to be Penn State's recipient of uh, this undergraduate leadership workshop. So I came out to Boulder for that. And I'll never forget getting to, we were staying in like the CU dorms and just running that morning and then getting to the lab and talking to people and about how they're hiking 14ers and everyone's healthy and active. And this lifestyle of just, it's not about just grinding in the workplace. It's about following your passions, both in the office and outside of the office and trying to to really make a difference. And I, when I got here and I got to run Magnolia Road and some of the dirt roads in the mountains, I was like, this is absolutely incredible. And at that moment, uh, when I came back, I think even my mom would say she knew I was going to move to to Boulder after that. She trip. just see that glow in your yeah. eye. I can see it now as you describe it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I really haven't looked back. I once I came out, I I literally packed up my little Suzuki SX4 at the time, drove eighteen hundred miles, and I've only ever flown back to visit my parents. Yeah, it's like you get here and you're like, oh, we we ain't in Pennsylvania anymore. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the here and now we talked about how you are going to be a dad soon. And that is something that you're really excited about. And you and your wife are going to focus your energies on from a training and racing standpoint. I know you just ran a 4th of July race locally here. I think it was four miles. If I'm not mistaken, uh, you've been racing throughout the spring. You set a 10 K PR on the track, not that long ago. What do things look like for you in the next couple of months with your son on the way? Yeah, I've had, uh, I did the LA Marathon in March and I was fairly happy with it, but it was also kind of an interesting race where I ran at the front for about 19 miles and we had mile splits that were from 450 to six flat. It was just, nobody wanted to take the lead. It was all over the place. Yo-yoing the entire time. It was absolutely yo-yoing. And it was one where there wasn't like an alpha male. There was nobody who was dominant. So nobody wanted to be the aggressor. And for once I had the patience not to just be the person who just sets the pace for everyone else. And I ran fairly well, had a big negative split, but it wasn't as big of a negative split as the guys up front. So I, I recovered pretty well off of LA. It was my second fastest marathon time. And I talked to my coach, Steve Jones or Jonesy, as we affectionately call him. And I was like, let's try to get faster. Ran the Boulder Boulder, ran my fastest time in seven years that I've done it. Um, finished fourth at the 25K for the second year in a row. And then set the 10K PR on the track, kept my mileage lower, really focused on speed. Now I'm taking, I'm still training really hard for the next uh, like four days or three days now. And then I'm going to take a couple weeks of just easy running, take some days off, really just take the pressure off. Uh, and then I'll build up to a fall marathon um, and then take a little break and build up to the Olympic trials. Had you already had plans to run a fall marathon before the IAAF changed the Olympic standards a couple months ago, or was that a relatively recent decision? That's a great question. Um, basically, we had selected LA Marathon to be the last marathon, the only marathon I do in 2019 before the Olympic trials in 2020. Would, which would have been pretty much a year out. Yep. More and or less. It's about a year out. It's a harder course. Um, the competition I felt like was relatively similar to the trials. Uh, certainly the trials will be much deeper, but 
the competitors up front would be similar to the competitors at the trials. We ran LA. They had just announced the IAAF uh, right before that, a few weeks. I'd already made the commitment to run. There was no way I was going to pull out because it's not IAAF approved. I think we're still waiting on USATF to make the final decision on exactly what will happen. It's still really cloudy. It's absolutely cloudy. It would be great to get some clarity, some sun through those clouds. But um, yeah, we... Uh, that was the reason why to do a fall marathon is to try to get the Olympic standard. Um, there's more to gain from going to try to get the Olympic standard and having that on the start line of the trials than there is to avoid doing one and then hoping that the cards fall your way at the trials. Will this 2020 trials be your third Olympic trials? Yes. Second in the marathon or third? It'll be the third in the marathon or in 2012, 2016 and now. Okay, for some reason I thought you'd made it in 10K. Now that I think back, you, no, you haven't made it in the 10K. No. It's been all marathon mm-hmm. for you. How are you thinking about the 2020 trials? You're 32 years old. You've got quite a bit of experience under your belt now. You're definitely trending upward. You've set PRs in the marathon, 10K, 5K, all recently. Yeah. Um, I feel like when in 2012, I was one of the youngest competitors at the trials, and I think I was 50th place or so. Um, and it was a great experience, learned a lot from it. Came around 2016, I had really good training going in and I ran just a little bit too emotionally. Um, and I think also I was trying to be a little bit too much like Jonesy. Jonesy was a front runner. He set the world record in the marathon. He had gone out in 101 in the marathon and still ran 207. That was his style. And I think I tried to emulate that too much and I made a few too many mistakes. Um, and then the training caught up to me. I started having more patience and composure. So I made that mistake in 2016 at the trials leading too early and then had a really nice marathon uh, at the U.S. Championships in 2017, have been continuing to improve. Now I feel like I think right now I'm about the ninth fastest of all the qualifiers going in, but there's everyone's right around 212. There's so many guys between 212, like 212 plus or minus a minute is, yeah. is a big pack right now for U.S. men. It is. So it, it, all of us should have some hopes of trying to contend. And that's the way I feel that I am entering this trials is that I am a contender. I would say uh, people would never say that I'm a favorite, but I am a dark horse or somebody who can be there on that day. And if I'm training hard, I'm gritty and I'm scrappy on that day, um, something special could happen. Have you always been an aggressive front runner or is that something that you picked up from your coach, Steve Jones? Um, Something I definitely learned more from my coach, Steve Jones. Uh, I think I spent too much time being patient and too conservative. And it's like, well, if you race that way, you'll always be 10th, 12th. Maybe you'll get really lucky. People have a bad day and you'll finish fifth. It's like, but if you want to win, if you want to be on that podium, you have to race that way. And I think that was really a game changer for me. And in 2015, I think I led the first mile of every U.S. championship I competed in from 10K cross country all the way to the marathon. And I think my highest finish is a fourth or fifth place finish. But I learned a lot in that year. And then once I was able to kind of temper that back and have kind of a more strategic approach to running at the front and running for that podium spot, I feel that my results have really started to come to fruition. Yeah. How do you straddle that line between being aggressive and putting yourself in the race and not self-sabotage? 
sabotaging yourself in the first couple of miles. Yeah, it's controlled aggression in combination with a deep internal confidence. If you don't have that confidence, you won't run in a way that you're running at the front, but also still running relaxed. You're running at the front, but you're running with this little bit of extra weight that you're carrying in your shoulders, in your arms. And eventually that energy that you're wasting comes back to bite you. And once you start having that controlled aggression and confidence together, then you're running at the front and you're also like in the beginning of the race, seeing the birds, seeing what's around you and kind of uh, really enjoying it. And then kind of focusing and harnessing that energy as the race goes on so that you're there and you're competitive uh, in the later half of the race. In what other ways have you evolved as an athlete in the past 10 years that you've been doing this at a professional level? Mm. I think um, Steve Jones, our, our group, has uh, approximately 10 guys right now. And the times that each of us individually have run the best, the group has had the best positive mojo across the board. And I think when you spend a lot of the time focusing on helping others and making sure collectively that we are all pushing each other, all of us individually do better and you just continue to build. So I think really taking out that uh, or just being more selfless uh, has been a way to kind of evolve. Do you think you would be struggling more if you were training solo on your own, even if you had Steve Jones giving you your workouts? Yeah. I, I, when I started, I was one of the, I think there's only two of us guys in the group and it's mostly a, a girls group. And um, at the time, it was probably good for my development to first understand his coaching style. But I think now it would be, uh, it would be just less enjoyable. It's more enjoyable to be a part of a group um, and all seeking our individual goals. Let's talk about your coach, Steve Jones. He's my favorite runner of all time. He's a local legend here in Boulder, former world record holder in the marathon, and probably the gutsiest, most aggressive racer who's ever stepped foot on this planet. Um, how long have the two of you been working together in a coach-athlete capacity? Uh, it's over six and a half years now. And how important has the longevity of that relationship been to your recent success? It's critically important. We continue to learn from each other and he's a man of few words. It's not like he's going to give, you know, some uh, long winded speech before or after a, a workout, but it's that continued process and maturity and building that relationship. And I've always had great trust in him and he's always trusted me, but just over time, you continue to gain more trust. And I'll give a good example. The other weekend I did a workout on uh, these turf fields at CU's campus. And it was like 12 by two minutes hard. And it was a Saturday workout. We had already worked out hard twice this week. It was like the third week in a row of three workout weeks. And for some reason I was doing well. Like I, I was tired, but I was moving fast and I don't wear a Garmin. There was no, uh, we take the turns differently every time, you know, it's just all on effort. And I was like, Jonesy, I think I was moving pretty well for how tired I was. And he's like, that's what I tell you guys. It's all about the effort. 100% effort one day. As long as you're giving it the next day, the paces might be different, but 100% effort is all you can ask for. And it was just like a beautiful way to summarize how our training is. If you just come in with the attitude of, I'm going to give 100% effort and he's going to guide and slightly change things along the way to make sure that you're not, you know, under training or over training. Uh, it's a beautiful relationship and it makes then result more meaningful. Had you trained that way before working with Jonesy or were you a little bit more analytical and data oriented? 
I was definitely more analytical and data oriented. Uh, part of that being a scientist at NCAR, I'm certainly, you know, I, I am certainly paying attention to details. And if I start lacking paying attention to details, my career as a scientist um, would be in trouble. So I really need to differentiate between the two. And it's funny how many times people are like, oh, you must like really crunch the numbers on your, you know, scientific approach to running. And it's like, my approach to running is far from scientific. I've been doing pretty much the same workouts every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Saturday for six and a half years, just slight modifications. Um, but I'm also running better than I ever have been because I'm listening to my body and really learning uh, each day. Do you think that's also furthered your enjoyment for the sport and the process of training? Yeah, I, it really has. One of the things I think is really cool is my wife, when we first met, she had signed up for her first half marathon, but she was not a runner. She had uh, signed up for something just to to do it and to have something positive to, to strive for. And she trained for it and she uh, achieved her goal. It was very exciting. And then she had signed up for another half uh, four or five months later. Uh, and then after that one, another half again in four or five months. And all of a sudden she started running two miles a day and then two became three every day, three became four every day. And then we would go to Sunday long run and she would come with to do her own thing. And then she kept the girls group in sight. And then she's like, well, maybe if I can stay with them on Sunday long run, maybe I should try doing a workout. Then she did a workout. And then she's like, maybe I'll join the group. Just continue to build. It continued to build. And her, uh, she certainly had the nervousness of like coming to a training group and doing a workout. But she thoroughly enjoyed workouts. And it was so fun to see that just purity of I'm going to run hard and I'm excited to do it. And it wasn't that running hard was in any way a chore or something uh, that she was like upset to be doing. It was an opportunity and she embraced that. Uh, and I think it elevated the whole group. It certainly elevated me. Um, and I think that when you are without the watch uh, or without knowing your exact pace and you're really just enjoying the process of trying to improve as a runner and trying to push yourself past your current limits, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, and I think it's important as well to not just surround yourself with new runners, but to stay in touch with that side of the sport, with people who are just getting into it. And you can see that joy and that purity and that excitement that builds over time, or even to look back at your own career and think about how you got into the sport or remind yourself of that every once in a while, especially when it does feel like a chore and it's maybe not enjoyable because I think we've all been there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And some of my, one race I had in college, I learned a lot from. I had done my favorite workout, 20 by 400. Uh, at the time, it was my favorite workout. And I had ripped it. And it was nine days out from going to the 5K at um, uh, Washington Husky Invite. And I was going to run the 5K to get in the fast heat of Big Tens, maybe even try to hit an NCAA qualifier. And I ran the slowest 5K of my college career there. I had put so much energy into it that I was so tight. And I had overthought it that I ran so bad. I get in the slow heat of the Big Ten Championships and I was a fifth year senior and I'm like, I'm in the slow heat and I couldn't get excited before the race. And it was this kind of flipped, you know, emotions instead of being overly excited. I'm watching like bass fishing on the ESPN2 network two hours before the race, before walking over to the indoor track. The race starts and I'm so, I feel great. 
and I take the lead with less than a mile to go. I run my fastest 5K I've ever run in college, and I end up placing sixth overall. Only five people in the fast heat ran faster, scored three points for the team, and we beat another team by one point. So it was like I really helped the team out of the slow heat, and I was like, wow, maybe I don't need to put so much pressure on myself and just take that step back and be way more relaxed. And look, I ran faster and had way more fun. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank the sponsor for this episode. It's the VCU Health Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia. It's time to start thinking about your fall race schedule, especially if you're considering a half marathon or marathon. And the VCU Health Richmond Marathon weekend on November 16th is an awesome option on the East Coast. I had a great experience there last year running the half marathon, and I can promise you that you will love this event regardless of what distance you choose to run. Why Richmond? It's a great running town. The event provides amazing course support, enthusiastic spectators, beautiful views of the river, charming neighborhoods, and hopefully perfect fall weather. I can tell you it was absolutely ideal last year. If you're running the marathon, one of the best parts about Richmond is that it's mostly flat, super fast, and it ends with a downhill finish on the scenic James River. Richmond was recently named a top 25 Boston qualifier. It's known to produce PRs for runners of all speeds, and Runner's World even dubbed it as America's friendliest marathon. After you cross the finish line, regardless of what event you run, you will be rewarded with plenty of unique finisher swag and an awesome post-race party. So if you're looking for something shorter than the full marathon distance, they've got you covered. You can run the Markel Richmond Half Marathon or even the Richmond 8K, all of which take place on the same day, November 16th, so there are plenty of options. You can use the code MORNINGSHAKEOUT, that's all one word, when you sign up and save 10 bucks on your entry fee. Get in now at richmondmarathon.com and start training today. My thanks to the VCU Health Richmond Marathon for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I think that's something all runners can relate to is that self-imposed pressure, even if you're not doing it at that elite level. I've seen it with athletes I coach and have been around who, again, back to saying they let running or their results define them. They get worked up for this marathon that they've been building up for for three or four months and they have so much pressure on themselves when they hit the start line, they crumble and it just doesn't go well. And then you can rewind the clock a bit or maybe fast forward. They're in the middle of a training block. They go into a race, not rested at all, no expectations. And then they end up surprising themselves. And that's nothing to do with fitness or the workout you did that week. That's just your mindset that you carry into it. And it's great to hear that from someone of, of your caliber, because I think people listening to this show, even if they're not running at your level, can relate to that. Yeah. My college coach, Beth Alfred Sullivan, she gave me a card when I left school and the card said, life begins at the uh, end of your comfort zone. And it's something that I've tried to embody and my coach, Steve Jones, currently embodies really well. And what we do is my strength, I feel like is the marathon. I can you know, run fairly well in the 25K or half, but like the 10K on the track, I was so far outside of my comfort zone. I did a 5K on the track last uh, summer. That was incredibly outside of my comfort zone. But like I continue to do them, do the 5Ks locally. I've done a 3K in Boulder last summer. Pearl Street Mile I did almost every single year for like five years in a row. And those are the types of races that 
you learn the most from because when they're outside of your comfort zone, you actually get more stressed. I'm like more stressed for the Pearl Street Mile than at the start line of like the U.S. Marathon Championships, right? It's like it's local. There's this pressure, but you learn so much from it and you mature uh, as a runner, but also as an individual when you step outside your comfort zone. And I think another takeaway from that is knowing what your strengths are and knowing where you're going to be your best. As you just said, for you, it's all about the marathon. You know that's your best event and anything that you do leading up to it or afterward, it's all to make you a better marathoner. And that resonates with something Des Linden told me on this podcast months ago. She said the same thing. She's like, for me, it's all about the marathon. I'll race cross country. I'll jump into these half marathons or 25 Ks, not rested. And not that she doesn't care about the results. She's trying to do the best that she can, but she realizes, you know, if she finishes four in a half marathon, um, that might actually be a good sign leading up to a marathon. She did it in, in the middle of a big week. Yeah. Having your beginning with the end in mind, you know, what's your big goal and then working back from there and then really just doing the, the tests along the way and trying to, to build your, your confidence. And uh, it takes a, a lot of internal confidence to do a race that is, uh, for me, at least shorter distance than where I feel strong. And if you're a shorter distance runner or longer distance, then you feel strong. Um, and being okay with the result. And as you said, you know, Des might have been really happy with a, uh, a fourth place finish or a 10th place finish because she knows she ran 140 miles the week before. Um, but having that confidence that you're on the, the path to that end goal that you have in mind uh, is really where you enjoy the journey the whole way. I'd love to stay on your coach, Steve Jones, for a while. What attracted you to want to work with him in the first place six and a half years ago? I was looking uh, looking for a coach and we sat down for a coffee or he doesn't drink coffee, so he had a hot chocolate. But we sat down and we chatted a bit about um, what his philosophy was. And he was like, you know, this isn't about me. He's like, I've had success in the sport, but this is about helping you guys achieve. And he's like, your half marathon is too slow. We need to get that faster. Um, he's like, I, I really believe you have, you know, minutes in there. And then I was a 104.59 half marathoner at the time, six months after working with him, I ran 103.16. So he was certainly right there. But one of the things I was concerned about was I really like to race. And a lot of coaches don't, I feel like they want their athletes to race minimally. And I was like, Jonesy, what do you think about racing and, you know, racing more frequently? He's like, well, racing is an art form and you have to practice your art. He's like, I like that you want to race. And he's like, well, pick local stuff. He's like, I used to race Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and sometimes on Saturdays. And sometimes I would start in the back and see how many people I could catch. Or sometimes I go out really hard or do an off distance and really just learning that art form of racing. And after that conversation, I was like, yep, we're going to fit really well together. Yeah. And all those guys were doing that back in the day. You look at Bill Rogers, who was the most successful American marathoner, you know, through the mid, late seventies, early eighties. He raced some, I mean, he raced an insane amount. It was like 50 <laughs> yeah. times, 50 times a year, but he was a great racer because he was constantly practicing that. And I think we certainly see that at the elite level here. And I think it's, you know, not to go off on a total tangent, but it's one of the reasons why it's a hard time to grow a fan base in the sport when the top athletes are only racing like four times a year. Yeah, I agree. And Jonesy gave a story too of he raced a Saturday morning 10K and then he drove across town, raced another 10K on a Saturday evening. So he ran two 10Ks. I think he won them both. They were like 
29 to 30 flat. They were solid times. And his coach found out two weeks later when like Athletics Weekly or some like newspaper that like printed the results. Yeah. yeah. And like that's what his coach saw that he did two 10Ks in one day. But like he wasn't afraid to to challenge himself in that regard. And I think the you mentioned the pre-internet days. It's like now things are on the internet and people unfortunately read criticisms and it's like I don't care if somebody wants to criticize my 5K time from July 4th. I mean, I got an opportunity to go and race and I went out a little too hard. I'd made a few mistakes. I learned a bunch from it. It was awesome. That's the point of it. That's the point of racing. So I I think that's a really critical component of nowadays people race less, I think, because there's too much pressure on those results. And instead of focusing on the process. And I think people are scared to some level what the results are going to be. What are people going to think if I run slow because that result will be out there instantaneously? Or what am I going to write in my Instagram post if this doesn't go well? I mean, see that? It sounds ridiculous, but I see it a lot. Um, and it's like, it's really, it's really paralyzing. So I think that's, you know, it's another great takeaway is to like get out of your comfort zone, roll the dice every so often and see what's possible for yourself. I think it's also important to be real. I always get frustrated when people don't share when they've had a bad day. And I've looked at my time hop, which like collects like your Twitter, Facebook and Instagram from years ago. And it was two or three years ago when I was posting about like, Mojo, I've lost you. But when I find you again, it's going to be really rewarding. And I was honest that I didn't have great Mojo at the time. I wasn't running really well. My results um, were not what I was hoping for. And now I'm running better than I ever have. And I'm really excited about it. But if I didn't share when things weren't going well, then why only share when things are going well? So I think being real and genuine, it it builds a bigger fan base, but it also helps others, I feel, more. And as a, a sport that's based on helping others achieve their goals and bringing positivity, I feel like we should be real with how we're doing. Yeah. And that's one of the goals of this podcast and my work in general is to show that as runners, we share a lot more in common than we do differences. And I think by sharing those experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, you see yourself in in other people and you realize, you know, you're not alone. It's okay. And if you persevere for a little bit while longer uh, or seek the help that you need, you can break on through whatever it is that you're dealing with. Yeah. Let's Stay on your coach, Steve Jones, for one more one more question. Um, how has your relationship with him evolved over the past six and a half years? Um, incredible. Uh, I'll give an example. So at the LA Marathon, he came and he was fortunate to be able to to watch the uh, watch the coverage on TV from like the finish line, and he was there with uh, my agent Josh Cox, and they were watching it together. Um, and Josh tells me how at like mile 18, he kind of like had to step out because he said I looked good. And he like texted Kristen, who was out on the course uh, with her parents cheering me on and said that I looked really good. I looked fantastic. Um, and I could tell on that day and how we've evolved that he was just super proud of how I raced that day. And he was already thinking of things we could do slightly different to have a better result in the next marathon. Um, But how he was engaged with that race and with my training leading up to it and how I was engaged and really communicated well with him, I think is really just, it's been a way different marathon buildup than other ones previously, just because of that 
that full engagement we have with each other. How important is that buy-in and that trust in a coach-athlete relationship? It's uh, beyond critical. I mean, he sends a program uh, with about four or five weeks of just every single day kind of like laid out, sends it to the group. And it's a little bit customized for like what mileage people should be doing, et cetera. And I don't think twice. I just do what's on the list. And it's, I have absolutely no thoughts of modifying it in any shape or form because I know that that's going to work. And I know that he's put the the thought and energy into it. And he's had the experience of not only coaching us with the program, but also his experience running. So it's a total buy-in from me. And then he sees that from not only me, but the other people in the group. And it's just this great relationship that we have where we share this uh, this common purpose and this common belief in, in what we're doing. It's almost like a family environment. It really is. I'd love to go back to your beginnings as a runner. What was your introduction to the sport? I was a soccer player, and I think in fourth grade, I wrote down that I wanted to play soccer at Penn State and be a weatherman. And I got pretty close to hitting <laughs> all those goals. I got a PhD in meteorology, and I practice the science now. Um, but and I went ran, to Penn State. And I went to Penn State, but I ran track instead of playing soccer. So my... Uh, freshman year of high school, I thought, what better way to get in shape for soccer than doing track? And I ran my first mile and I ran like 456. And I was like, oh, that's like pretty good. At the finish of that race was a dual meet with a pretty good school. I thought that it was like when your foot crossed the line, that's who won instead of like your chest. So like I was fighting for third place and I like outstretched my leg and like he leaned at the tape. Almost and got like you were sliding into home base or something. <laughs> yeah. I was such a such a newbie, but uh, I just love that the sport was was so very pure. And when you're a freshman who's really training and running for the first time, you're almost if you don't get hurt, guaranteed to improve. And I improved. I was fourth in our district in the 3200 meter. I ran 1014 or 1011 that year. Then my sophomore year, I was 9.43, the 9.23, the 9.13. I had almost a linear progression. Uh, and at some point, there was a crossover of my enjoyment for track was more than that for soccer. And soccer was more political with playing time. And it just kind of lost that love that I had for it from age four to age 16. And that transitioned into running. I really was able to kind of put my passion there. Um and yeah, it evolved through high school so that when I went to college, I was all in with running. When did you give up soccer? My sophomore year, I played varsity soccer and I also kicked for the football team. And then after that season, I was really disappointed with how soccer went. I decided to do cross country and kick on the football team my junior and senior years. And was it at that point that you knew you wanted to continue with running beyond high school and try to make a go of it as a collegiate athlete? Definitely. When I, my sophomore year, when I ran 9:43, I was like, I'm only a handful of seconds from qualifying for the state meet. I can do that uh, as a junior and a senior, and that's really where I kind of focused my energy. Was let's try to be really good at the two mile, and then cross country was it was just so new. It was so uh, raw. It was just a bunch of guys on the start line all hammering, and um, I learned a lot. And I was overshadowed by another guy in the in the area who was very good, but. I think it led me to have a better track season. And were you dead set on going to Penn State because you grew up wanting to be a soccer player there? Or were you aware of the rich history of that school's cross country and track program and you wanted to be a part of it for that reason? 
So what's interesting, and I don't talk about it very much, but I actually went to the University of Maryland for a year. So yeah. I always wanted to go to Penn State, and I was uh, disappointed with the recruiting process at the coach at the time who was there. And I decided to go to University of Maryland where there was a new coach. He was younger. He recruited me heavily, um, and they had a meteorology or physical sciences program. And I got there, and it was pretty soon that I realized I was really missing home. And, you know, my long-term goal of running at Penn State or to go to Penn State was then uh, coming back to me. So it was only one year I was at Maryland and then I transferred to Penn State. And I actually ended up gaining credits by transferring because an AP course counted when I went to Penn State. So ultimately it um, it worked out from an academic perspective as well as an athletic perspective. And athletically, what were some of your biggest learnings as a collegiate athlete? I had a uh, a really good college coach, uh, Beth Alfred Sullivan, who's now director of track and field and cross country at Tennessee. She was extremely positive and she erred on the side of holding us back. And I will never forget my first year there. All of the guys had been coached by Harry Groves and they were all um, they'd all run a lot of mileage. They were training really hard. And Coach Sullivan erred on the side of I want everyone healthy at the end of the season and we would line up for the track workout and it might have been like uh kilometer reps down to 400s and she's like all right i want you to start in like 72 73s per 400 and get down to 70 and those guys were used to ripping like 65 66s as hard as they could and i was like all right i'm gonna hit an a plus workout i'm gonna start at 72 73s work down to 70s and we went to the pen relays. There was five of us that were running distance events from the steeplechase through the 10K. I dropped my 10K PR from 31.40 down to 30.19 on that day. Between the five of us, we had something like six minutes of personal bests. And we all had trained slightly less intense with less mileage than we had done previously. And it was just, again, taking that pressure off and really running fast and relaxed rather than just fast and aggressive um, really transitioned great results for all of us from steeplechase through the 10K. That's a great lesson because I see that with age group athletes. I coach, you give them a workout, maybe it's five by a mile at seven minutes or 6.30 or whatever it is for them. And they take that as, okay, I'm going to smash that and knock it out of the water. So if you say seven minutes, I'm going to run 6.40s because that's a better workout. And back to what you are talking about previously with that trust, that coach-athlete relationship, like you just, you have to have that, you know, you have to have that buy-in and that trust in the process and that long-term, it's going to work out for you. Yeah. And I think a great example of that now is look at Elliot Kipchoge. He's probably the greatest of all time in the marathon. And you see how he talks about his training group and his philosophy and his process. He has the utmost confidence and it transitions to how he races and the guys he works out with are really good i've seen a few clips of workouts where he's like 10th in the line going around this you know dirt track at 8,000 feet and they're just working together and they're not trying to overachieve they're trying to hit their targets and i think that's a really important aspect is an A-plus workout is running the seven-minute pace that was prescribed, not that seven-minute pace was the uh, threshold of a successful workout that you have to be under it for it to be successful. I think that's it's a very American mentality to take whatever is assigned to you and to try and blow it 
out of the water. That's just that's <laughs> that's just my own my own personal perspective. But back, I mean, to your point about Kipchoge and unpacking a few things there. Number one, he's been working with his coach for the entirety of his competitive career. At this point, it's more than half his life he's had the same coach, and that kind of longevity, that sort of trust, that sort of buy-in you know, will lead to great things over time. And I've read about him from his mouth saying, I train at 90% and mm-hmm. he races, he saves a hundred percent for, for race day. So he's always finishing those workouts feeling like he could probably run another rep or he could run another mile. Whereas I think our, our more Americanized mentality is I, I want you to be able, I want you to drag me off the track or I want to finish and be like hands over knees, not feeling like I could move forward another step. One asterisk with that is Jonesy is also very good about telling us he wants us to blow up in some workouts. He's like, I want you to go out so hard that you push your limits. And yeah, he's every like, once in a while you have every to. Every once in a while, but it's not every, every day, every workout. And that's a key differentiator. Back to your collegiate career. At what point did you realize you wanted to continue competing post-collegiately and devote a few years to seeing how good you could be? Uh, when I got to that fifth year and I was kind of a little burnt with the academic process and how hard I was working in school. And then my running was, I was a 29, I think I'd run 29, uh, 40 the year before. And I was like, I was very good at having almost a linear progression and just chipping away time. And I was like, if I just take off, you know, 15 ish seconds, I'm running low 29s. That's, uh, at the time was one of the best American collegiate times. And, I ran four 10Ks that season. I ran 29-22 at Stanford, 29-15 at the Big Ten Championships, 29-40-something in like 80-degree heat at the first round of NCAAs, and 29-22 again at the NCAA Championships. And I was the fifth U.S. finisher at USA's 12th overall. And that process, I felt like it was just building me up to giving me the confidence that I should try to to run afterwards. And I went to the roads and I went, did a couple of local road races, but the, the key one I did that summer was Boilermaker. It's 15 K in Utica, New York. The crowds are phenomenal there. It's one of my favorite road races. It's really hard to get to Utica, New York, but once you get there and you run that race, it's just walls of spectators for almost the whole thing, save for a golf course, you run between three and five miles. And I ended up finishing as either second or third American and I made a few hundred bucks in prize money. My time was like 45 and change. And I was just so uh, proud of that result. And I enjoyed road racing so much. I was like, I have to really give this 100%. Um, And as we've talked about, I found out giving 100% for two hours of the day was better than giving 100% for 24 hours of the day. But um, that was really my fifth year, kind of how that evolved was when I knew I wanted to continue running. At any point of the last 10 years of your career as a professional athlete, have you considered hanging it up or moving away from the sport? No, not at all. Never had a moment where you doubted yourself and said, you know, maybe I'll just devote my time to meteorology. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, uh, I can't say that I have. I think I... I've never even thought about retirement. I feel like my goals will change. I feel like my times will at some point get slower. Um, And I think that I could be 45 and trying to set a mile PR and maybe at 
46. I'm trying to win level 100. I don't know where exactly I'll be once I start slowing down, but I feel like that's one of the real beauties of this sport is you can set different goals and it might not be trying to continue to PR in the marathon or wear the USA singlet at the Olympics or world championships, but more of what inspires me at that time. And maybe it'll be coaching and running with my kid when he's in high school. I mean, we will see how uh, how things evolve, but I just love the process that I don't really consider ever hanging up being competitive um, in any way. Well, in the lifestyle, it's a part of who you are. It's not who you are, but it's a part of, of who you are. And it's great to hear that you don't intend on losing that because we see a number of athletes who race at a high level and it is a job for them. And then as soon as they start slowing down or the joy's been gone for a while, they step away and then, and they never run again. And it's, it's not really a part of their life. One of the hard things with the sport is the financial security. It's non-existent. And you can be at the top of the U S in your respective event and be doing really well and then have one injury and all of a sudden your your net worth of what you're valuable to a, a shoe company is much, much less. And that like level of financial insecurity is just very difficult to have a long and enjoyable career. And my my career is being a scientist. I'm not gonna be, you know, making my my living off of running and that's okay. Uh, and I think that that is a big difference for me to a lot of other runners at the top level is uh, I'm not reliant on running to, to pay my mortgage. And that makes a really big difference for my enjoyment of the process. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about science. When did you first develop an interest in meteorology? I was fascinated with snowstorms because I really wanted to have office school. So as much as I like the <laughs> academic process, I also really liked having a snow day. So I would literally watch every newscast. I would be checking the internet on our desktop computer because cell phones weren't around at that time to, to find out what the latest and greatest National Weather Service forecast was. And I was just inspired. I remember the Weather Channel would have like... Uh, informational like 30 minute videos and they would air them between like 3 and 3.30 in the morning because they didn't think anyone would watch them but I'd like tape it on our you know cassette tape VCR I, VCR <laughs> and then I'd rewatch it and, like I had this like passion from about fourth grade all the way through um, to now How would you describe what you do now here at NCAR? So uh, NCAR is about the performing science for the betterment of society. And a lot of my research has really tangible, uh, real-world impacts. So I'm a machine learning scientist. I apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to some critical problems in uh, physical sciences. So meteorology is really interesting because we have physical equations that govern the uh, how the atmosphere evolves. But there's also a lot that we don't know and that we can't measure. And machine learning can learn these very complex relationships that we don't have equations to represent. So I apply machine learning for trying to improve wildfire prediction, to try to improve renewable energy forecasting for better grid integration. So my work has uh, hopefully real benefits for society if we have better wildfire uh, forecasts for wildfire fighters, whether we have better renewable energy forecast so that we can be less reliant on um, dirty fuels. Uh, so I really feel very inspired by the work I do. 
when was that moment that you realized you wanted your work to have that kind of impact? My dissertation research was on using artificial intelligence for solar power prediction. It was sponsored by the Department of Energy. And that project was uh, a very uh, powerful moment because at that point in 2012, solar power was not commonly seen on every rooftop. I mean, it was pretty new. Getting data was almost impossible because nobody was measuring their solar power generation for, you know, multiple years. And when we finished that project, it was uh, a very big collaboration, public-private and academic partnership that we led. And I had contributed to the final algorithm development for predicting short-term solar power. And I think that that really inspired me in the energy space. And the energy uh, industry is so complex. I'm just constantly fascinated by it. And right now, solar plus battery storage is becoming more and more impactful because batteries have come down in cost. And I'm really uh, excited to be at the front of that research on how we can integrate them. And uh, I actually just went to Alaska for a conference and I'm working to try to help them and their microgrids be able to use battery storage combined with renewable energy forecasting so that they'd be less reliant on expensive and dirty diesel. So I feel very empowered by the work I'm doing that it is and can make a difference. I think that's super cool. On a silly level, to switch things up a little bit, have your teammates and training partners over the years, knowing that you have this interest in meteorology, bugged you about weather before a race and like, hey, Ty, what's the forecast look like for marathon next week? How should I change things up? Like, how do you think it's going to be? Like that sort of stuff. So... uh, Two stories. One, I would say that teammates probably are looking at the weather further in advance than I am. So I'm like, a week out, we have a little bit of skill. But if it's showing like rain and wind in the morning of Boston Marathon and you're a week out, the odds are that forecast is going to change by the time you even get to like Wednesday of that week. So I kind of have a, a more laid back approach until it's much closer to the race. Um, and then I'm it's certainly in tune with how the, the weather's supposed to be. But I'd say I'm surprisingly less analytical than a lot of people uh, early out. And then Jonesy certainly makes fun of me a lot because I get a lot of forecasts wrong. <laughs> um, so there was one time where we were in April and I was like, I don't think we're going to get that much more snow. I mean, it's it's getting warmer and I was fairly new to Boulder and we hadn't gotten that much snow in the spring. Then we got like two feet of snow at the end of April and 30 inches on May 1st. And I will probably never live that down. He let you know that you were wrong. Yes. <laughs> a few more things before we close up here. You've had, I would argue, a very successful professional career over the past 10 years. And you've done an admirable job balancing that with your actual career, um, working in science. What advice would you give to an aspiring pro who is coming out of school or about to come out of school and want to see what they can do in running over the next several years? Keep the purity in the sport. Keep that, that love that you have for the game that you did when you were in high school, when you were just doing it for fun and continue to have that in college and continue to have that beyond. When you really focus on the process and enjoying it, 
um, you'll have a longer career and a more enjoyable and more rewarding experience. Uh, for me, that meant having the right balance, both um, with my wife and our soon-to-be child, as well as uh, the academic uh, scientific setting. And I think as you come out of school, making sure you find that balance. If you're really excited about running and maybe working in a running shoe store and learning the the business that way, maybe that's a great way to have some balance because it's still running, but maybe you're like focused more on the technology of shoes or customer service and just trying to find the right balance so you're not just on Instagram all day, seeing how other athletes are doing, thinking about your own running, diving into the data, spending too much time on Strava finding that balance so that you continue to have the purity in the sport. Last question. As a fan of the sport, what excites you in running right now? What excites me in running is twofold. One, the women's American distance running is just on fire. They are uh, hitting Olympic qualifiers left and right in like every major marathon. They've raised the bar of American running, American distance running. And I think the second part is the the U.S. distance running right now is really on the cusp of becoming, again, closer to the top in the world. And we have a lot of guys that are around me, around that 212 mark, that together, if we can push each other, we can make that next step. And all of a sudden, if we have a handful of guys and more than that, that are sub-210 marathoners, and all of a sudden, American distance running is, is back to having... Um, having a lot of people at the front and kudos to Scott Fobble and Jared Ward, who at Boston showed that, you know, we can be there at mile 23 of the Boston marathon. And I think that that is just super exciting after being in the sport for 10 years. I feel we're now at that place where there's a lot of us that are right there and eager and excited to, to do it. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. You make each other better. Scott Fobble was a two twelve marathoner, not that long ago. And then he puts himself in it. He focuses on competing and not chasing the clock. He finds himself leading the Boston marathon with less than five miles to go. And he doesn't ultimately finish there, but he walks away with a nice PR and that's going to inspire guys like you. And the other, you know, large group of two twelve ish marathoners who are like, if he can do it, why, can, why not me? Yeah. And that's and, a really powerful thing. And Scott and Jared are just open books. Like they, they want to share to, to make everyone better and build each other up. And I think that, you know, really that's, that's what American distance running should be about. And I'm excited to be a part of that, this, uh, this group of athletes right now. I think that's a great place to end it. Tyler, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Thank you, Mario. All right, that's a wrap on this episode. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tyler McCandless. Let us know what you thought of it by tagging me. I'm at Mario Fraley and Tyler, he's at Track Tie on Twitter or Instagram. I'd like to thank the VCU Health Richmond Marathon for sponsoring this episode. The event, which also includes a half marathon and an 8K, takes place in Richmond, Virginia on November 16th. Whatever distance you run, Richmond provides phenomenal course support, great fall scenery, awesome finisher swag, and supportive spectators. I know from my experience running the half marathon there last year that when you run Richmond, you get it all. Let me tell you a little bit about the marathon. It's a mostly flat, fast course, top 25 Boston qualifier, and it ends with a beautiful downhill riverfront finish. Runners World called it America's Friendliest Marathon, and they certainly live up to this distinction. There's plenty to love about Richmond. So start planning your trip today. Use the discount code MORNINGSHAKEOUT, that's all one word, at richmondmarathon.com to save 10 bucks on your registration. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, 
please share this episode on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in. You can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which will help new listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank my man John Summerford at bearsrecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show, including the music, which he made himself, and he's a big part of my small team here at The Morning Shakeout. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and you've been listening to The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>